Welcome to the Passing Judgment Podcast. This is a podcast for you, people who are curious about politics and the law and how the biggest political and legal issues of the moment affect you. I'm your host, Jessica Levinson. I'm a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and I hope you'll pull up a chair and join me and a rotating cast of experts, including journalists, politicians, political scientists, lawyers, as we talk through some of the most important issues of our time. We're going to tackle things like, is the Constitution in crisis? What are the laws of our democracy? How are they changing? And what does that mean for your daily life? I hope you'll listen, provide us with some feedback, and enjoy the time that we can spend together. Today, we are joined by my friend and colleague, Professor Michael Genovese. He holds the Loyola Chair of Leadership Studies and is a professor of political science and director of the Institute for Leadership Studies at Loyola Marymount. He's president of the Global Policy Institute. In 2006, he was awarded the Political Science Association's Distinguished Teaching Award. He's written over 50 books, including How Trump Governs, The Trumping of the American Politics, and Leadership Matters. He is one of the nation's experts on presidential politics, leadership, and the presidency, and I can think of no one better to speak with and to talk with about President Trump, candidate Trump, and where we're going from here. So, Michael, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your expertise with us. Well, I'm excited for you, and uh, more than that, I'm excited for the general public who will be hearing from you regularly, your wit and wisdom. Michael, I know you, and I know you like working through puzzles. What's one of the biggest political puzzles that you're working on right now? Uh, I'm really working on two. One is the puzzle of how American presidents uh, approached the Native American, both the Native American nations and the problems that were caused by settlers trying to move west. Just finished a manuscript, first draft of a manuscript on that. The other thing I'm really puzzled by is how Trump got elected, how he's chosen to govern, how the Republican Party has responded to that, and how the public has responded to that. Because he is really a a precedent breaker. He is unorthodox. And his relationship to the public, the press, to the law, has been one that is very conflictual and very difficult for most scholars to get a handle on. This brings me to something I really want to ask you about, which is how does America go from President Obama to President Trump? How does America go from the first African-American president, a progressive, to Donald Trump, who doesn't particularly seem to be a conservative, certainly isn't a progressive, but did get close to winning the national popular vote, of course, did win the Electoral College, And did so in part because there were some people who voted both for President Obama in 2008 and 2012, and then again for President Trump in 2016. And so how do the same people vote for uh, two individuals who seem really diametrically opposed to each other? Uh, There were. And one of the things to remember is uh, American presidential elections tend to have a kind of pendulum quality that we swing back and forth. When we have a president of one style, we seem to want someone with the opposite characteristics or style to follow. And we keep going back and forth. And that's based on, I think, in part, what I call the Goldilocks dilemma, which is, you know, this part is too hot, this part is too cold, this part is just right. Uh, In many respects, 
our political system and our legal system is too hot. That is to say, presidents have too much power in areas where they should have less foreign policy and war. Too cold in areas where they uh, might be able to benefit from having a little bit more power. And so that, that that there's a pendulum that swings back and forth between those different things. Um, you know, we go from electing a very experienced president in George H.W. Bush to Clinton, who had no D.C. experience. Uh, then from Clinton, who was a, a well, let's say he was a, a, a cad, um, we go to the uh, super serious and super Christian, uh, even to the point of being boring, didn't even drink, uh, George W. Bush. Then we swing back to Obama from the sort of anti-analytical presidency of, of George W. to this professorial kind of cerebral president. And after we had our eight years of the cerebral president, we have just the opposite now. And so, in a way, it's a historical moment that, that brought about Donald Trump. But it's also a, a function, I think, of the, the persistence of angry voter elections in the modern presidency. That voters, uh, and this is very measurable, and we know that this to be true, voters accept, express a great deal of more distrust in government, dislike of politicians, dislike and distrust of institutions, and a high degree of anger and alienation. And so, you know, the, the 2016 is a perfect example. You had angry voters on the left and the right. The angry voters on the left, their guy, Bernie Sanders, well, may have been treated badly by the, the, the party establishment. Uh, and, and, you know, they pretty much sat out, in some respects, the election, helping Donald Trump, who was the angry candidate on the right. Um, but, but most of our elections, partly it's a pendulum swing and partly it's backlash uh, that we see. And I think Donald Trump came in um, at a time when he was able to really express, pinpoint, and speak to the anger and resentment of many voters. Um, and that's why you said, you said there were some overlapping voters. Some Obama voters voted for Trump. I think those were the angry voters on the left who voted for Trump. It's kind of an, a protest vote in many respects. Unfortunately, that protest vote became a president of the United States. I have to ask, did you name this the Goldilocks theory before we had actually broken bread together? Or did you name it after you ate with me, knowing what a picky eater I am? No, actually, this preceded uh, your existence on okay. Earth, I think. <laughs> It's an old, old theory of mine that um, um, it just it, 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 it was generated by seeing presidents having extraordinary power yeah. in foreign policy and war, and then being shackled by a thousand Lilliputians in domestic and economic policy. And it just there was a real dis disjuncture there that I was trying to, to, to resolve, and I finally just sort of came up with Goldilocks. I love the Goldilocks explanation because everybody knows exactly what you mean. And so one of the things I wanted to pick up on is this idea of distrust in government and how disastrous it can really be. Because as you and I know, once people lose faith in our government, and a government, again, that's a representative government that is supposed to make decisions on our behalf, then we have this kind of death spiral where people stop taking part in the government, they stop voting, our representatives stop being responsive to our needs. And so we really end up having leaders who are elected just by a voting class, not by the rest of us. Um, and I wanted to know if you think part of this distrust in government, part of this distrust in power, part of the pendulum swing that you talked about is actually a result of 
or actually causes why we have divided government. Yeah, I'm not sure we are especially conscious of voting for divided government. Uh, I think that's something political scientists want to believe because we do end up voting for, for divided government. But I think it's all a part and parcel to what we've seen in the last 40 years, starting with basically Vietnam, um, uh, the anti-Vietnam War um, sentiment, up to today. And that is that um, uh, it, you know voters who used to vote straight party ticket today split their votes a lot more. Voters who used to be very loyal to a party now express much less loyalty and commitment to a particular party. Um, and so that the, the terrain is different than it used to be. I want to talk about that terrain for a minute, and specifically the terrain that you have to tread to become president. And I want to talk a little bit about what makes a good presidential candidate. Does it fundamentally depend on the moment, on the mood of the country, on what we're dealing with? Or are there certain specific characteristics that just transcend time and always make for a good presidential candidate? Yeah, I think it's the action-reaction model, uh, the latter of what you're talking about. Um, there are a few things that you, you should have if you're going to be successful. One is luck and the luck of timing. Uh, are you running as a change agent at a time when people want change? Are you running as an outsider when people don't like the insiders? Are you running as someone who wants to shake up the system at a time when people have distrust for the system? And so I think you know that timing is is important and that's was was donald trump had donald trump been a candidate for eight or 12 years earlier i think he would have been obliterated in the election uh 2016 was the only time he, i think he could have won um other things that you need obviously are money uh, money is the mother's milk of politics as the great uh, jess Unruh of california used to say um uh and our political system unlike almost every other ad advanced industrial system allows for money to play a major role in politics. Uh, in 2016, shockingly, uh, the, the winner, Donald Trump, was outspent by the loser. That is the exception to the rule. And so, uh, uh, and I, I think a third factor that you need is you need to have the, the match of message and moment uh, for the masses. Uh, the right message at the right moment for, for what the people want. And so that message is important. Donald Trump's message as, along with his personality, mattered. People liked his kind of belligerence, his, his uh, I'll take on the system, his they're corrupt and they're beating you up. And uh, in, an, in an age when people are very conscious of income disparities, where income inequality is growing, that's a great message. It was the one Bernie Sanders had, it's the one Donald Trump had. Um, uh, and so that the, sort of the timing of message to moment can be very important. But um, a good what what you need to be a good candidate is often different than what you need to be a good president. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in, in running for the White House, it's okay to divide. You say this is my base; these are my people, and I'm going to get them out to vote. Once you convert to the presidency, from when you transition from campaigning to governing, you have to. That's what we always used to say: govern all for all the people. Donald Trump has explicitly chosen not to, to, to be president to all the nation, not to bring us together. Uh, he's chosen to be president for a small segment of the people who elected him, who are his base. And, you know, even presidents and almost every president in our lifetime has, has been a partisan. 
once they become president, they, they certainly, at, the, at a minimum, pay lip service to bipartisanship or nonpartisanship. And they do develop or try to develop policies that are more uh, encompassing and welcoming. Donald Trump will have none of that. He, will, yeah. he, he is a, a constant uh, divider. There's so many great things to pick up on there. One of the things that, knowing me, you know that I'll have to talk about is this issue of money and politics, because it's something that I've studied and thought about for a long time. And while I know that President Trump didn't spend as much as Hillary Clinton, I actually think that he was the beneficiary of so much free media because he kept calling into radio shows, TV shows. He got so much attention that he was able to get for free what most candidates buy. So people asked, you know, did does President Trump show that money isn't the most important thing in politics? And I think the answer to that is no, he doesn't. He shows that you either need to get people's attention by buying it or you need to get people's attention by being, frankly, a reality star, a bigger-than-life character. And I also want to pick up on something you said about the difference between the job interview for president, what it means to be a good candidate, and what it means to be a good president, the actual job, and that there's a big mismatch there. It seems to me, again, when you look at what it takes to be a good candidate, you're looking at fundraising, you're looking at oratory skills. When you're looking at what it takes to be a good president, you're looking at the ability to try and set a legislative agenda, to unite the country, to lead the country on a world stage. And as I say that, I feel like the, you and I are going to collectively gasp just thinking about President Trump continuing to lead us on a world stage. But this is one of the things that people looked at when candidate Trump became President Trump, where people said, will he grow into the role once he's around other world leaders, once he walks into the Oval Office, will the responsibility hit him? Will he change? Will he somehow become more presidential? And so that's the next question I want to ask you, which is, did he change? Has he grown into the role? Or is this exactly what we could have expected from candidate Trump, no more and no less? Uh, that's a great question, and, and, and it was one that, that we were asking at the very beginning. And it, it, To rephrase the question in, in a more political science uh, sense, uh, people were asking, would Donald Trump change the presidency, or would the presidency change Donald Trump? Most people thought the latter. Most people thought that the, the, the demands of the office the norms of the office, the rules and regulations and practices would compel Donald Trump to moderate his views, his positions, and his personality to fit expectations. He has not done that. He has chosen not to, to do that. He has ignored the traditional rules and regulations, violated a bunch of norms. Um, he's a rule breaker. He's a, you know, he, he's a disruptor. He was in business. And in business, that's a, a, a necessary and a good thing. In politics, at, on occasion, it's a good thing. What you do is you tear down the old system to build up a new one. Donald Trump can only do one of those two things. He can only tear down. He has never been able to build. And that's why um, when the history books are written 20 years from now, um, Donald Trump is, is, is going to come in for heavy, heavy criticism. Uh, he, he has both ignored and trampled on the traditional presidency. Um, his norm busting, his rule breaking, his, his just incivility and rudeness are things we never expected of a president. And so he has not 
changed the presidency in the sense that he's reinstitutionalized new norms, but he's deconstructed the presidency. And that's why uh, a lot of folks think that, okay, four years of Donald Trump, we can take and pick up the pieces and rebuild. Eight years, that's a real question. Will he so tear down the system that we won't be able to repair Humpty Dumpty once it's been cracked and is on the ground? Yeah, I want to talk about this issue of norm breaking. And when I visualize the Trump presidency, I really think of it almost like an earthquake on a building, like the Trump presidency is a stress test on the Constitution. And we're seeing all the places where the Constitution held up pretty well for hundreds of years, but now the walls are breaking. Now there is fracturing. And I think of the Constitution as this brilliant document that essentially assumes some misbehavior. And that's why we have a system of checks and balances. That's why we have a system of separation and power of separation of powers, where each branch is looking over the shoulder of the other branch a little bit. And so it seems to me that the founders thought that people were going to misbehave a little bit, that they would lie a little bit, that they would try and take a little too much power, but within certain bounds. And that's where I see the Trump presidency as fundamentally different, that we are no longer even misbehaving within those bounds. And so I think my question really is, does the Trump presidency show that there's some really bigger fault with the structure of our government? Um, And let me answer it by not answering it. Let me answer it by going back to Machiavelli, who told us that you know we, we, we can expect good behavior of our leaders knowing full well that it's not going to happen that leaders have to be the the fox the lion they have to sometimes you know do things that are unsavory um, and, and that kind of dose of realism is something that the framers embraced they accepted that Machiavellian view of human nature that we were selfish so how do you construct a, a government that is quasi-democratic if people are self-interested? The answer was that the framers, mostly Madison, had a very architectural answer for that. You you structure it so that you have three separate institutions sharing and more, I think more explicitly, overlapping powers. And so that constitution is based on some assumptions that do not apply today as they did when the framers wrote the constitution. And, and, and one of the things that the framers argued against was the rise of factions and George Washington and his farewell address against the rise of parties. The framers should have anticipated the rise of parties. They hoped that it wouldn't happen. What parties have done is they've undermined the the very essential theory of the American system of government, which is you have separate branches and then how you stop one institution or person from becoming a tyrant is you have the powers and interests spread out. And so when one grabs power, the other two are there to pull it back because they have a self-interest in, in pulling it back. Madison's famous phrase, ambition made to counteract ambition. The problem is, in a system with political parties, party loyalty may undermine separation of powers. And so that, you, and you see that today with Donald Trump, where Republicans are willing enablers of a president who they, who they need, most of them neither like respect, nor do they agree with. But he's their guy, and the partisanship has, has taken taken over. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the framers probably would have wanted to know, what do you do when there's a would-be tyrant? And their answer was, well, Congress will stand up to him. 
Congress is not standing up. They are lambs when they should be lions. It's so fascinating to think about these dual planes of our government, the structure of our government, and then this overlying plane of the rise of parties, the rise of political parties and how they've really undermined our protections. And for me, this is one of the most surprising parts of the Trump presidency, that the Republican Party has really become the party of Trump, that it seems like the Republican Party is so consistently supportive of the president, that there really is no dissent in the ranks. And we talked about this a lot when you and I taught in the middle of the impeachment, we basically had to junk our syllabus and uh, change things around a little bit. It was really exciting. But what we saw is almost down the line in the House, in the Senate, party line votes on this question of whether or not the president should be impeached. And it really just feels like we have on the impeachment question, on so many other issues, judges, healthcare, immigration, we've become so tribal. And so my question to you is, was this inevitable? Was there something that we could have done about this? Because it does feel like, again, it's tribalism is trumping, so to speak, any sort of good policy. Um, people make choices. And I, I completely agree with you that, that Mitch McConnell is, is Donald Trump's pet poodle and he caves into him no matter what. Um, uh, maybe even a better example is Lindsey Graham, who at one point uh, was emerging as sort of the replacement for John McCain, the man of honor, uh, speaking truth to, to power. He has become such a sycophantic uh, behind kisser. Um, he's, he, uh, there's a great new article in the latest issue of Atlantic by uh, Applebaum who talks about you know, why people sell out to power. And Lindsey Graham is one of the featured, I guess, uh, enemies that she, that, that she speaks of. Um, but, but I mean, he's kind of the poster child for this. But it is not inevitable. Men and women of honor exist. And there are times, there are a lot of reasons why they won't speak up, but there are times when they must. And I think this is one of those times. I think, imagine if you will, John McCain, if he were alive today, what he would be saying. Um, uh, it, it demands people of character to step up because this isn't a partisan issue any longer. You're, you're right that, that the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. They are a personalized, not an ideological party. They are not a party of principle. They are a party of person, and it's one person. Um, and I would bet if you could ask your, if you could delve into the brains of your audience and ask those Republicans, really, do you, do you really think you can support this guy? They would say no. But in public, they feel they have to say yes. Uh, why? Uh, Lindsey Graham and other Republicans are afraid they'll be humiliated by Trump. And he would humiliate them. He will give them a bad uh, little a nickname. He will tweet against them. Um, and he will endanger their reelectability by threatening that they might be primaried out of office. And, and, and so Trump's been very effective at the, at the uses and misuses of power. But the Republican Party, I think, has, has failed the character test. And I, I can see some, some of those people standing up at some point. I can't believe they haven't done so up to this point. It's, it's really about something bigger than Donald Trump. It's about the Constitution. It's about the rule of law. And it's about the future of the Republican Party. 
This is kind of a weird thought experiment, but do you think that Democrats similarly would have fallen in line behind what I view as an unqualified president, as a president who flouts the rule of law, as a president who frankly doesn't have, as far as I can see, much respect for our country, for our structure of government, for our standing on a world stage, or even for most Americans? Would Democrats similarly have said, you know, let's let's just get our agenda passed and we'll do the best we can and then we'll play clean up later? Uh, sadly, I think that they would. I think they they would cave in similar to the way Republicans did. There's there are inducements to do that. I mean, in the Republican case, getting the Supreme Court, getting tax cuts, getting uh, regulations lifted off of business. Those are things they all want. And Donald Trump's sort of the, his wicked Faustian deal is, I'll give you those things you want. You just have to bow to me. And some people think that's a, a fair exchange that you sell your soul for a couple of policies uh, victories. Um, I think the Democrats would do the same. Uh, and I, I look back on, on, on Bill Clinton, whom I think was uh, a rapscallion. Uh, the day that the uh, revelation of the his re sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky came out, I happened to be on Fox News the day after, and I said, you know, this is the thing you fire people for. And while we're, we can't technically fire a president unless you impeach him and convict him, he needs to resign. He, is, he has lost the moral support of the country. He is not a credible president any longer. He must resign. My Democratic friends just threw books at me. I mean that quite literally, actually. Um, but I think, you know, if, if, if Trump does it and you condemn it, you have to do it when Clinton does it. Uh, but, but you can see the partisanship here. I remember when Arnold Schwarzenegger ran for, and Donald Trump ran for, uh, for governor and then president, respectively, revelations about their sexual life came out. People who condemned Clinton supported Schwarzenegger and Trump. You can't do that. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that's the weakness of both Democrats and Republicans. I think, um, uh, yes, I think sadly the Democrats would fall in line for the most part as well. There's one thing I want to clarify, and I think I speak for both of us when I say we don't equate the overall behavior between President Trump and President Clinton or Governor Schwarzenegger. What we're really saying is if marital infidelity is a problem for you, then be intellectually honest that marital infidelity is a deal breaker for you or it's no problem at all. But I think we should point out that there are big differences between the conduct of President Clinton and Governor Schwarzenegger, both of whom clearly cheated on their wives, but didn't behave in general in the way that we're talking about with respect to President Trump, who not only has apparently engaged in marital infidelity, but is also subject to accusations of sexual assault, which of course are very different, and has in general, both as a candidate and as a president, seem to have behaved in ways that are just completely separate and apart from, frankly, any other politician that we've seen. I, I agree with that completely. So we've spent some time talking about what it takes to be a good candidate, what it takes to be a good president. And here we are again, looking at now candidate Trump running for reelection. Although I have to say, part of this presidency has felt like an endless campaign as it is, that we didn't have to wait until election season for the campaign. But now we're really in the thick of this campaign. And what else is happening in America? 
obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we're in the middle of a pandemic where all evidence points to the fact that we are lagging far behind other countries, that our federal response was so disastrous that it actually cost people's lives, that we had no organized response to this health and safety emergency, and that governors really had to act on their own. Add to that the fact that now we're facing an economic crisis that might be the biggest economic crisis since not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression. And so I'm really setting this up to ask, do you think, even despite all of that, does President Trump stand a decent chance of being reelected? I think uh, if you ask me that today, if I could only take a snapshot, uh, I'd say no. But, but we have 130 more days to go. And I wouldn't underestimate Donald Trump. I would not underestimate the Russians, who are trying very hard to, to help Donald Trump. I would not underestimate uh, his, his base. Um, and I think one way to look at this is to look at what we in political science sometimes call gap theory. That look at the voting gaps uh, and the policy gaps. Um, Donald Trump's advantages uh, include the, the tech gap. He's got, what, 80 million Twitter followers and Biden has 4 million? Um, there's a huge, huge advantage that Donald Trump has on social media that Biden cannot and will not make up. Uh, that gap, two election cycles ago, we would not have mentioned or noticed, but that gap is huge now because social media has become the sort of form of communication for so many people. Um, there's also going to be the money gap uh, that will advantage Donald Trump. Uh, he was outspent in 2016. He will grotesquely outspend Biden in 2020. Biden's fundraising has done very well in normal circumstances up to this point. He's, he's been a good fundraiser, but Trump started the day after he got elected and has a huge war chest, which he did not have to expend during primary season. Um, and so he's going to have a huge gap uh, in, in spending. The other huge gap that may, in fact, help him, and it could turn against him, is the enthusiasm gap. Uh, in 2016, the enthusiasm gap, people who were riled up for Trump compared to people who were riled up for Hillary Clinton, was an, a huge gap. Now, the, the thing that may mitigate against that in 2020 is not Joe Biden. Biden's not going to, you know, be this guy that people will, will jump off walls and walk through bridges, walk, walk through, uh, uh, jump off bridges, walk through walls for him. But I, I think, and here's the big difference, Donald Trump may be the, the big motivator for Democrats. And so the enthusiasm gap is a big question um, that needs to be answered. This is going to be a turnout election. Whichever side turns out wins. Um, the last thing I'd mentioned in terms of gaps is the gender gap. The gender gap mm -hmm. traditionally is that the Democrats get 10 to 12 percent higher voting turnout among women than do Republicans. Right now, that gap is more than doubled. It's 25% or more. And so I said, I said it could be a turnout election, an enthusiasm election. Women could make it the gender election. So a very quick fact check. Vice President Biden has 6.4 million Twitter followers, and President Trump has 82.5 million. So as you say, huge spread between the two. And speaking of these big gaps, I remember in the 2016 election, and I think you and I were actually on TV talking about this, that 
we were looking at these polls that turned out to be wrong. And people were saying, is this going to be the election where not only we assume that Hillary Clinton's going to win, but she's going to win by historic numbers among women. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out this election cycle. And I, I really want to pick up on this idea of the enthusiasm gap that you talked about, and particularly the idea that it feels to me that Vice President Biden is almost an afterthought in this election, that the question really is, do you want to elect President Trump, reelect President Trump, or do you want to defeat President Trump? Do you want him out of office? And then kind of secondarily, once you've passed that threshold, it's, oh, and are, are you okay with Joe Biden? And so in part because I agree with you, I think this election is going to be all about turnout. Could the bottom of the ticket, could the vice presidential choice in this case be more important? Could Biden actually gain some of the enthusiasm gap by picking a really energizing vice presidential candidate? Or is it just a truism that people don't vote for the bottom of the ticket, that they're always looking at the top of the ticket? Uh, it's a truism, but not an absolute one. Um, uh, when John McCain selected Sparrow Palin, it looked like it could be a game changer in his favor. A week later, it became a, a liability over which he could not uh, uh, rise. Um, Vice presidential picks rarely, rarely matter. The best you can really hope for traditionally is that maybe you can bring in your home state. But people pay, now in, in, in the case of Joe Biden, he's in his 80s and so uh, age might be a factor in, in looking at the vice president. Kamala Harris, we're Democrats are already gonna win California. So why not go for Val Deming of uh, Florida? She might help to bring uh, that extra 1% in. Um, he's already said he will choose a woman. I think that's probably useful uh, to him. But uh, one of the things I would mention, because you, you referred to 2016 and the gender gap, is uh, uh, colleagues and I did a statistical study before 2016 when, when Hillary Clinton was running uh, in the primaries against Barack Obama to try to figure out the extent to which people who say they would vote for a woman for president really would. And what we found is that when you manipulate statistically the situation so that you're not directly asking someone, would you vote for a woman for president? Well, almost everyone would say yes, because they don't want to look bad and be prejudiced. But if you ask in a roundabout way about things that, are, that you object to, you could find a, a, a more accurate measure. And what we found at that time was that there's about a two and a half percent gap. People who said they would vote for a woman, but wouldn't. If you apply that to 2016, it explains why Donald Trump won. All the close races were very, very, very tight. And Trump wins by, what, 100,000 votes here, 200,000 votes there. In that case, I think gender did not help Hillary Clinton. It hurt her. And so uh, I think you know a woman on the ticket t today as vice president is not going to have that much of an impact unless it is someone like Oval Deming who can win a particular state. Just a quick fact check that... Uh, Vice President Biden is now 77 and I believe would be 78 on Inauguration Day if he were to win the election. And those statistics are so fascinating when you talk about the gender gap and what people say openly about whether or not they'll vote for a woman and how they actually vote. And I think it's it's just inescapable that sexism played a role in the 2016 election. And I also think it's inescapable that 
the Electoral College will play a huge role in this election. And as we've talked about, and this this topic, we could do a whole other podcast on this, but it's all about those few swing states, those five to six states that really matter in the election. And it's all about those swing voters who I increasingly think are not undecided between Biden and Trump, but they're just undecided about whether or not they'll show up or not, whether or not they'll go to the polls or not. Or I should say, during a global pandemic, they're really undecided about whether they'll mail in their ballots or not. Yeah, I think that's especially uh, salient in a pandemic election, where people would be smart to stay home. And so can you facilitate an honest, open election in a pandemic? Yes, you can do it by mail-in ballots. Will we do that? Donald Trump is doing everything he can to stop that. The Republicans are doing everything they can to stop that. Um, not, it's not just you know the old traditional, uh, let's repress the vote. Um, this is a whole new thing. And, and the height of hypocrisy is that most of the people who are condemning mail-in ballots have used mail-in ballots. So I, th- I think, you know, uh, the, the weird thing, and we've talked about this before, in the United States, we do not have a presidential election. We have 50 or so. Each state sets their own rules. Uh, each state has different, uh, sometimes large, sometimes small, uh, 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 differences between California, Florida, and Minnesota. And so, you know, the, the, those 50 states with 50 different sets of rules, it can really make for some wild and bizarre policies about voting and how you do it. And so rather than having a national standard, everyone should be able to vote via mail, we're going to have 50 different decisions on that. Well, and this is exactly why the prayer of many election officials on election night is please let this not be close. Because as you said, we really have 50 different elections. And in fact, it's mostly county registrars who have a lot of power in terms of election administration. And one of the things, though, I want to make clear before we end this podcast is I want to talk about these claims of voter fraud. And I want to be very clear that large-scale voter fraud is a myth, that the idea that we have a corrupt system, that you can't trust our election system, is simply false. Now, are there very, very rare instances of voter fraud? Absolutely. Are they more likely to occur in the vote-by-mail system? Yes. But again, emphasis on very, very rare. What's the thing that we should really worry about here? Is we should really about our worry about our leaders trying to scare us into thinking that our election system is not fair, that it lacks integrity, that we can't trust it, and therefore that we just shouldn't take part in it. If you look at registration numbers uh, for March, they just fall off a cliff. And I think in part, that's the point here. The point is to try to suppress the vote. Because as you said, this is going to be an election that turns on turnout. And the point, and it's so dispiriting, is just to get fewer of us to take part in the election process. And so if you remember one thing from this podcast, it's please do go vote. And I think with that, it really is time. I could go on for hours, but I really do think it's time for us to wind down. And so let me ask, is there anything else that you want to make sure you tell the listeners about 
President Trump, or more specifically, because you're an expert in this area, what skills it takes to be a leader on at this level? Um, you know, all, and I mean literally, all of our great presidents govern for the benefit of all the people. All of them had feet of clay. All of them made mistakes. But all of them, the Lincolns, the Washingtons, the Roosevelts, tried to govern for the people broadly defined. Donald Trump tries to benefit the people narrowly defined as his base. All of the great presidents went the extra mile to appeal to the better angels within us, to use Lincoln's phrase. Donald Trump tries to bring out the worst in his people. Um, all the great presidents face these major crises, and they face them squarely. They face tough times directly. Donald Trump in this pandemic is missing an action. He's uh, playing in ostrich politics. He's digging, burying his head in the ground and acting as if there's nothing going on there. Well, you know very well that if you bury your head in the ground, a very important part of your anatomy is left exposed. We're the ones who are going to get kicked in that part. Uh, uh, and so he's fiddling while Rome is burning. All of the great presidents relied on going back to traditional American values and ideals. As, as hard as it is to live up to those, as often as we fail, trying to live up to those ideals was what the great presidents were about. And all of those presidents tried to lead in many different ways by example. Our president, our current president, does not do that. Uh, and so uh, I would just ask, I would say to folks, think of Lincoln, think of Washington, think of FDR, and then think of Trump, and then go vote. I'm almost tempted to end with that because that really is our message. Go vote, feel safe about our election systems, mail in that ballot, or if you feel it's safe, show up on election day, but take part in our government because it really is and should be a representative government. And so while I'm tempted to end on that note, I do want to actually end on a lighter note. And one of the things I do in this podcast is I ask all of my guests the same three questions so that we get to learn something about what's happening in politics and the law, but also learn something about you. And so I think I may have a guess on this one, but the first question is, which famous person, dead or alive, would you like to invite for a dinner party? Um, you'll be disappointed. Mickey Mantle, my childhood hero. Uh, but if I can't ask Mickey Mantle, um, that may be my private answer. My public answer would be, uh, I'd love to meet the smartest man in the history of the world. I'd love to meet Aristotle. And I would love to pull up a chair and crash that dinner. Now, next question. You are going to be stranded on a desert island, and you get to bring one meal with you. What is that meal? I have memories of growing up in New Jersey and going to Yankee baseball games with my dad to the uh, you know, day games. And on the way back from New York, we'd go home through Newark, New Jersey, where I was born, and we'd go to dinner at Vesuvius, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and I'd always order the veal pizzaiola. And every time I mention it, I can actually taste it from, my, from memory. That's what I would ask for. That's a great memory, and it really does show that so often we associate food with a memory of a person, a place, an experience. And so here's the last question. You have a superpower for one hour. What is that superpower? Um, I would like to have the superpower of being um, a, 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 research, a medical researching genius. So in that hour, I can cure three or four of the biggest diseases and then take a break. 
Well, I actually disagree. I would like your superpower to be that you become president. And I would like you to take all of these years of scholarship and knowledge and spend at least an hour in the Oval Office fixing everything. But I know I'm not going to get everything I hope for. And so one of the last things I want to ask is, uh, where can we get your books? And which books should we be looking at? I know that we don't have time to talk about all 50. So do you want to highlight just a few? Well, the, the, there's a book called How Trump Governs, which tries to look at how he makes decisions. Um, and then there's an introductory book called The Paradoxes of the American Presidency, which is just a general book on uh, on understanding the presidency. Those are those are two that I would suggest that uh, people, if they are interested, would t- should take a look at. And where can they find them? Um, we're all good books are sold and 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 as i i say you know with the holidays coming up ask for them by name and as always please do buy in bulk all right michael genovese my dear friend my colleague an expert in this field thank you so much for joining us that has been another episode of passing judgment and we will see you next time